Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of Warrior Connection. It's been another wild few weeks and everything, a wild few days, but we're back here. And uh, more information, as always, you get respect, information, education, and hopefully we're helping to save lives. I'd like to dedicate this program. Ray's going to talk about his what happened to his crew, his platoon in Vietnam, and he went and did a Memorial Day special to honor one of his members who died in that horrible, horrible event that day on the ridge. But we've got to remember, I lost more of my team members. I'd like to honor and everybody Colonel Dr. Connie Boatwright. Connie was an incredible officer, incredible doctor, nurse, the whole shebang. She led our team when we did the 1996 Atlanta Olympics when we went across the nation and taught the VA and the 120-city program. Uh, just one more down, so now we've lost them all. I mean, Dr. Andres Carnegie Bott, Dr. Thomas Little, Dr. Howard Weiner, Dr. Connie Boatwright, and at the same time, all of us seek medical care. Continues to have problems for myself. Again, the same thing happened now. I needed my pain meds, and they didn't come. They just put them on hold and didn't mail them. I was able to get uh, this Wednesday when we were recording this, and I was able to get in touch with people after a lot of phone calls last night when they didn't come. And this morning, they did hand deliver them. But this is ridiculous. One thing I learned, again, is a White House hotline does not help. All they do is take information and pass it on, and there's no response. It's a horrible, horrible thing that we're living through, and we're losing too many and everything else. Well, today, let's talk about Memorial Day. Let's talk about Vietnam and what happened with Ray's team. Ray, you wrote an incredible book some years ago, and let's start from the beginning and tell about everybody and what happened this Memorial Day, please. Okay. Uh, it's an honor to even talk about you know the, the men that we served with Doug in Vietnam and and you uh, we had the same stories only different different chapters maybe but um, in 1969 I went to um, Vietnam and was assigned to K Company Third Battalion Third Regiment Third Marine Division and we, they were located and operated in an area right adjacent to the DMZ area most northern I Corps the first 15 miles of South Vietnam from the north. And um, it was called the meat grinder. And the reason it was called such, because there was so much contact between the Americans and the South Vietnamese out, and, uh, you know, our adversaries, the North Vietnamese, which were communist forces. Uh, it was almost a daily thing, because in order to uh, keep a handle on the North Vietnamese going into the South to terrorize and attack them, we had to operate and, and uh, pretty much stay in the bush uh, almost 100% of the time. It's estimated in that particular area you could be in contact with the enemy uh, in a 365-day period. You could be in contact with the enemy over 300 days because we lived in the jungles and we were constantly, you know, running into them. They running into us, and then you had every type of combat you could imagine. Plus, you had the uh, environment. You know, it was 100 and sometimes 118 degrees. Um, living in the jungles and such as this, um, you know, then you have mosquitoes and leeches and everything trying to bite, trying to bite you. So everything became an obstacle, including the enemy that was out there trying to kill us. Now, one thing they did with Doug was uh, they avoided us whenever possible, which was not that often. But because they they knew we had air cover, that we had you know we had fighter jets, we had. Uh, Gunships. We had all kind of um, you know aviation on our side, including those B-52s that you were flying. 
And um, they were scared of those B-52s. They were scared of anybody. Uh, and so when they when, they, when we got into contact with them, they knew the first thing we were going to do was call for help, and that would be artillery, naval gunfire, and then the air cover. So they didn't want to really uh, have confrontation with us, if it's possible. But we were because we were so mixed in this area, it was almost a daily thing of where you're running into them or they running into you. Uh, sometimes we would find ourselves in the middle of a base camp and not even know it until it was too late. They didn't have time. And, and a lot of times what they would do, they would take a platoon or even a company to attack you while the larger force would get away because they knew that air cover was coming in. And so during 1969, the year I was there, um, we I got there on February 1st, I think it was, um, there was some, my friends were constantly coming in. There were guys already there. Um, we mixed and mingled. We became friends. Um, our company had three uh, rifle platoons, infantry platoons, and then a weapons platoon that interspersed with us, uh, machine guns and mortars and such as that. But I was in 1st Platoon, 3rd Squad. And in 1st Platoon, uh, you had three squads and Although we were separate squads of about 15 people, you know, 15 men apiece or so, uh, we we became intermingled and we became friends and brothers. And, and I remember one time um, a rocket came in and uh, one of the stories in my book and, and pretty much wiped out second squad. When you, when you have a friend losing them, dead and wounded, that day we had two guys killed uh, in second squad and uh, uh, just about everybody else was wounded. One of those guys was reading a letter from his wife. She, he just got a picture of his uh, brand-new baby, about two weeks old now, and he was showing the pictures of the baby around and his wife when that rocket took him out of here. And so it leaves you devastated many times, and it just it just knocks the wind out of you. Um, and so we went on. There was a guy that came in March, about a month after I did. His name was Donald Liebel. Donald was a natural point man. He he loved, he, I don't know if he loved walking point, but he felt safe in doing that, the first man in the platoon or the squad, whatever we were. And uh, I, I did the same thing for about four months or so before I became a squad leader. And um, I just felt natural to it. I I would be up there. I'd have, I thought I had good instincts of sight and smell and hearing and all these things. And you had to be aware of what you were doing. It was not a position, appointment was not a position that you would pick some you know, goof off to do it because this guy could be the difference between life and death for the whole, for the whole unit. He had to be observant in everything he was doing. You don't, you don't pick a guy to walk point after he got a dear John from his girlfriend or something because he's going to be uh, distracted by certain things. So really it was a volunteer position, but also it was um, uh, not too many men that got to do that because you couldn't trust them many times. So Donald was a particular point man. He was one of the best we had in the platoon. And um, I met him through his squad leader. His name was Bill Bushy. And Bill was a very charismatic young man. He was 20 years old. He um, he was going to go to college, but he knew he might get drafted, so he decided to get the two years out of the way, and he joined the Marine Corps. And so that's how I became friends with Bill Bushy, uh, his squad leader. And I was squad leader, so we used to be in meetings together, and we talked together and shared his sister's cookies and all this stuff when he got them in the mail. And uh, Bill had really tutored me in becoming a uh, point man. So we be there was 
in the in the fellowship of this, and you know it, dog, through the flying and the aircraft, you may not be close to everybody, but you're really close to a lot of guys um, because you're in close proximity to them every day. And uh, in Vietnam, we were a lot of battles. And when I wrote that book called The Never-Ending War, The Unseen Scars of Post-Traumatic Stress, they've used that book in hospitals and Walter Reed and different places, military hospitals, because I not only talked about combat, but I talked about what took place in us through that combat and how we were affected by it physically and emotionally and mentally and every other way. Um, And so all these things were taking place. Well, in September of 1969, just we didn't realize it. We didn't know this, but they were getting ready to pull our units out of Vietnam because 333 was one of the first units in Vietnam, 1965, so they would be one of the first being pulled out under uh, President Nixon's de-Vietnamization program he began. And so we would be one of those first units, but they didn't tell us. We didn't know about it. But within weeks uh, from from September 1st, we knew, uh, we, were, we didn't know it, but we were going to be pulled out of Vietnam. But I guess battalion or whoever it was decided we needed one more operation. So they sent us up to a place called Mutter's Ridge, M-U-T-T-E-R-S. It was named after some favorite, you know, famous colonel or somebody. And this was one of the most notorious places in Vietnam for contact with the North Vietnamese. It was literally hundreds of yards from the demilitarized zone of where the enemy uh, utilized it. The the, uh, UN had designated this area called the demilitarized zone. It had no borders. It had no signage. It had nothing to represent uh, where you were, but you had to know it on maps. You had to be able to know a map and, and recognize this DMZ area. It was four miles deep, and it ran the width of the country, and this was called a no-man's land. Nobody was supposed to be in there. You couldn't operate it. You couldn't um, run patrols. You couldn't bomb it. You couldn't do anything. So it was more or less of a safe haven. And the enemy utilized that area and, and really used it as a staging area for their troops. Well, we were connected to that edge of that DMZ, the southern edge, and so we were the first ones in the units in that area, not just us, but a lot of units, Army and uh, Marines. We were the first ones that made contact with the enemy coming south, and this was the North Vietnamese Army, so they were very trained, highly trained, highly equipped, um, and so it was a battle between two armies every day, it seemed like. And so in September, they decided to send us up to Mudder's Ridge, and so we went up to that ridge line. It took us about uh, close to two weeks to leave a place called the Rock Pile and go about five miles to where this ridge was. And this is all the jungles and and uh, hill country and things like that. And during that two weeks, we were constantly in contact with the enemy. We were small firefights, mortars, all these type of things, lobbing them back and forth. And so um, we got to that ridge line. It wasn't quite two weeks. It was probably 12 days or so. We got to the ridge line. And um, as we were getting ready to go up the ridge, um, it was the afternoon before we left to go up that ridge, we saw another company up on the ridge line. Um, It might have been, I don't know, it was um, 400 feet uh, up on that ridge line. That's what it was. So you could see up there on the ridge line, part of it. And we saw Lima Company up there, our sister company. And it was early in the morning, and suddenly as they began to walk, uh, the way we saw a Claymore mine go off, and boom, 
and it took out the point man and several men behind him. It killed the point man. I'm not sure who else died up there. But we were watching that when it happened, and we knew we would be up there the next day. So it, it makes you, you know, it really makes you a little afraid. Well, I had walked point, Doug, for many months, and I I didn't have a problem walking point. I've always, I, I didn't think I was going to get killed. I really did not think so. I mean, it was foolish thinking maybe, but I thought I'd already gotten the soldier supposed to get me, and so I I, I did that stupidly, man. And um, my men that were getting ready to walk this ridge line, I told them I had to have a point man that day, and they all kind of backed up. They took about one step backwards, and they said, Clark, man, please don't make me do this today because they were fearful of that ridge line. This was the third time we'd been up there that year, and the second time they got ambushed five days in a row. So they're a little bit leery about this ridge line. During that time, I had malaria, and so I was out for about a week or so, week and a half. So I went back to the company up on that ridge line. So I decided I was going to walk point the first day, and the first day up there, later that afternoon, I got caught in an ambush. And um, I've talked about this many times, Doug, about how uh, I, I got within 15 feet of the ambush before I knew it was there, and I saw the my, they, my buddy saw them, and he opened fire on them, and then I saw them. My two buddies beside me began running back up the hill because to get out of that ambush, but I couldn't because I was leaning backwards to sit down. I couldn't stand up. So I was caught there. I looked at the enemy, and they looked at me, and they were about 15 feet from me, the closest one to me. And, and that guy opened fire on me full automatic. And I played dead for about 20 minutes laying there. And I went through an entire death um, phenomena, I guess it is. I wanted God, and then I wanted my daddy. And uh, my mom had died when I was young, so I, I never understood that until later in life. I was talking to a pilot, and he told me that um, he said when they used to listen to the black boxes on down aircraft, you could actually hear the crew hollering, Mommy, Daddy, or Jesus. That was the three names he heard. And when that plane was going down, and Doug, I know that you, that probably touches your heart you know, deeply because you were connected in those aircraft. And you know how fearful it is flying up there thousands and thousands of feet. And you can imagine that thing being out of control and going down. And people in there, you know, you're, you're out of options. You have no Nothing you can do. And so when that happens, people will begin to reach back to the one they have most confidence in, and men will call for their mommy or their daddy or Jesus or whoever they're calling for. That was the three names he ever heard, in, always heard in the uh, in those black boxes. So that's exactly what happened to me on that ridgeline. Well, about 20 minutes later, the Marines came down to where I was. The enemy disappeared in the jungle, and, and I got up, and everybody was shocked, and then I, I I couldn't find any blood on me. Everybody was checking me out for bullet holes, and I had no bullet holes. I mean, the guy totally missed me 15 feet away with a full automatic AK-47. And I picked up my helmet and had two bullet holes through my helmet. Or, you know, shot me twice in my helmet. So we were all on, on uh, you know, we were a little bit nervous. Somebody said at one time, Doug, courage is not the absence of fear. It is doing what you have to do in spite of your fear. And so we were all edgy on this thing. We knew we were in a, a bad situation. We were among the enemy. They were all around us, thousands of them. And there was only about 180 Marines or so. And so we had to continue the operation. We knew that afternoon when I got ambushed, we, 
they, uh, the company commander knew we were going to get a, attacked that night, so we uh, we set up camp in this uh, under the trees, a triple canopy. We got under there, and they began firing mortars. And I, I think they fired at us several hours, and they they hit men. And I know our platoon commander, our platoon sergeant, was blown off the ridge line. They had to go out and get him. And I'm not sure if he died or not. I've never really looked that up. But uh, there were a lot of men being wounded by those mortars. Well, it was the next day or the day after that. We could hear the enemy on this particular hill on that ridge line because when the planes came down to drop their ordnance in this area, there was a bunker complex up there. And we could hear the uh, small arms fire firing back at that jet plane. And they would be firing. You could hear AKs and you could hear 50 cows and whatever they might have had. Boom, 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 boom. After that jet had, had dropped his ordnance and was pulling back up, you could actually hear them. And we knew they were there. We knew there was a bunker complex there. We'd been there twice before. And we'd, we would take the hill, Doug, and then we'd leave it. And they would retake it or reoccupy it. So there was no land that anybody was winning in Vietnam. They were actually, it all came to body count. Who killed the most people won the war. That's basically what it was. Well, the fact of the matter is we lost over 58,000, um, and they lost a million. But because we backed off of the war, our nation did. I don't think the military did. Uh, they made us leave the country, and so... It, we became known as the men who lost the first war in America. We got a lot of flack from World War II and Korea veterans because they said we lost the war. Doug, we didn't lose the war. You know you, you didn't lose the war, Doug. You, you fought just as honorably and hard as you could. And, you know, um, but when they pull your gloves off and pull you backwards, you, you really don't have any choice about it. You have to follow orders. You know, we looked at this. On that day, that horrible day, and, and I know I sent you this picture. I'm looking at it right now. I took a picture of the section of the wall, the Vietnam Wall. I'm reflected in it. And in this thing, the part that I've reflected, I know I provided you to Bill Bushy, Bill Diggs, Leonard, Don Leibel, Jim Sickles, Willie Rogers. All your guys are there. Yeah, you know, and I'm going back and I'm looking at this now, and I just came back from Minnesota Memorial Day to honor Don Libel, who was your point man, and the connection because you and I became co-hosts of the show, we became family, and then because I had the opportunity not only to set up this wall section, but to take it down and carry it back to the truck and put it away to go on to the next location. We all became family, and when I look at the names on the wall and the stories I've listened to you and everything that's happened, it just brings a tear to your tear to your heart and all the other stuff. Uh, you know, you talk about that horrible day and what happened. To everybody, Western Illinois University sit rep veterans' perspective on combat and peace. The uh, 2018 version just arrived in the mail just minutes ago. And um, in here is a poem. This is written by Ian Lovington, The Cries of a Medic. Through a hurricane of bullets, a dart at lightning speed. I hear the screaming cry of medic, and I hope it's only a small bleed. The louder you scream, the faster I come. I'm here to fix the damage already done. 
I arrived looking down at the one I call a friend, struck dead, center of mass. I know this is the end. Applying pressure just to help him cope, I can't help but look, knowing there's no hope. I feel his life slip from the last breath that closes lifeless eyes. Lifeless eyes. I knew him the best, only to hear their cry for medic once again. This was written by Ian Lovington, a current veteran, current wars, a young child, young kid, young enough to be our grandkids. I want to narrow it down in a personal way because, Doug, you talked about it in a personal way. You have become family, Doug. You're part of our family, of the Kilo Company family. And I feel like I'm, you know, part of your family with those aircraft. And because we know the fear, we know the anger, we know all the remorse and the, the grief that comes with a family of losing people in it. And, you know, I've often said that when you join the military, one of their primary uh, missions is to make us a family because. If you will not give your life for somebody that's not your family, but you will your family, maybe. You know, that, that many times that's the way it works. And so they try to create this camaraderie that makes us a family. And then why does a young man jump on a grenade when he wants to live like everybody else? Because of love, because that family. There's two guys or three guys, whatever it is, in that fighting hole, and he just does naturally. He bails on that grenade to suffer, to suffocate it. And he takes the full brunt of that grenade because of his buddies. And so that's the camaraderie. But that's why it's called a never-ending war, because this stuff never goes away. I want to tell just a little bit about Donald Liebel, and then uh, I'm going to try to hold back. And then, um, then I'll talk about the Memorial Day service. When we were ready to go on that last hill, we knew the enemy was there, and we were going to have to confront him that day. We knew we were going to be in a fight. We knew they were in a bunker complex, which makes it much harder and what you would do, you'd get close to that area, and then you'd, you would uh, fire off a uh, smoke grenade or throw it, whatever you did. And then the jets would come pound those, um, those areas that you were trying to take, and you took one at a time. And there may be 50 or more uh, enemy soldiers in no bunker complexes, so it's going to be a difficult day. We know we're going to take casualties. You're talking about 18, 19, 20-year-old Marines and, uh, or soldiers, whoever they might have been. That's a that's a heavy burden to put on a young man because he's going to confront people. Not we're not shooting paintballs and and um, you know laser tag. This is real stuff. These are high power high high um, high power bullets and and weapons and things. And so it's going to be a rough day. Well, we took off that morning, and when during that morning when we were eating breakfast, uh, we came off ambushes and. We thought we'd have the day off a little bit, but because we'd sped up, you know, on the ambush. But they decided, no, we're going. They're going to send first platoon over to do a recon. We're going over there to check it out. Well, we know the enemy's there, so we're going to have a bad day. We understand that. So we were getting ready to leave, and Bill Bushy, his the squad leader, second squad, came over to where I was, and he wanted to see my helmet. That's what he. And we were laughing about it, and I said, uh, I asked him, I said. Um, uh, who's walking point for you? Because he was his squad was designated to walk point that morning, and the reason one of the reasons was because Donald Lebel was a great point man, and they could trust him. And so he said, uh, Don is or Lebel is going to uh, you know walk point for us. And Bill only had three days before he had to, before he was going to leave to come back home. They had a That's wedding. Bill, Bill Bushy, correct? Bill Bushy, and uh, so Bill's a squad leader. And I told Bill, I said. 
you be careful up there, man. Keep your eyes open. And he grinned. He had, a, he had this contagious grin about him, and he just... He was the most charismatic person I believe I've ever met as far. Everybody that knew him, Doug, thought they were Bill's best friend. That's the way he always treated everybody. And so Bill grinned at me, and he said, well, I'll see you boys on top, or I'll see you guys up on top of the hill. So they lined up. We lined up. I was toward, my squad was toward the back, called the rear end Charlie, tail end Charlie, what they call it. And so we formed a column up, and we stayed about 10, 15 feet between each other, and we started up that hill. This we had all kind of weapons. You know, we were loaded with weapons. We were ready for the battle. We were trying to get our mental part of it. Everybody's on high alert, and we're moving about a half an hour or so after we had part of our platoon had not hardly well. We hadn't even got outside of our company. Uh, the company was left on a hill to take care of things. I mean, they were watching us, but we hadn't even got out of the base camp hardly at all when suddenly the column stopped. Now, Donald Liebel was probably the most proficient point man we had. But because we were fighting an enemy in Vietnam, he'd been fighting for 50 years. He'd been fighting the Chinese, which brought the communism part, uh, the Japanese, the French, and now the Americans. These armies, the North Vietnamese armies, were very proficient just by experience. They had been fighting a lot of people long, a lot of times. This particular ridgeline, no telling how many battles had happened on this ridgeline, there were bunkers and fighting holes or foxholes everywhere because from previous battles. So the enemy knew uh, what the, what happened was the enemy would have run into the DMZ because that was a free zone for him. But they couldn't because we had so much air cover during the daytime dropping ordnance on them and trying to knock them out. We found out there was five to 600 North Vietnamese later on. We didn't know it that day on that hill and so they would have gone back into the dmz to preserve their own selves but they couldn't because the air wing would have knocked them down and so at night they would have gone across the d or into the dmz but they couldn't do that either because we had puffed the magic dragon flying around the uh the gunship with all the big guns and gatling guns and all this stuff and they were dropping flares but we noticed the night before looking backwards they had a it was a full moon that week and the night before we got ambushed, you could literally read a newspaper out there. So they couldn't leave in the daytime, and they couldn't leave at the nighttime. So what they did, they hunkered down and waited for us. And so 48 Marines went over there. Donald Liebel was the point man. Well, Donald got almost all the way into the ambush, maybe even to the edge of it, before he noticed a uh, Claymore mine hanging in a tree pointing at us. Now, he knew he was in an ambush. He knew he had gotten into an ambush. The enemy was so concealed in that jungle, they had dug trenches to lay in because they had claymore mines on the other side of us, and when they, they would get down in the ground and they would blow those claymores, it would hit us but not hit them. That's the way it was. They had, this was a perfect ambush. This was in, done in an area with triple canopy where the uh, the air wing could not see us, so they couldn't do anything to help us. The uh, Huey gunships couldn't help us because nobody could see us. And so this thing was planned and plotted out, and they even had an ambush set up for the set, for the uh, third platoon that would come and help us out. They ambushed those guys on the way over. So anyway, the column stopped. Donald had recognized that, that Claymore mine. He made a motion for his shadow man, the guy behind him, to call up the squad leader. So the squad leader walks up, Bill Bushy, and he and Donald are talking. And Donald says, we're in an ambush. 
they've got to figure out what to do. The only thing you can do, Doug, is have all your men hit the ground, prone position, and return fire to your right side. That's where the enemy is. That's the only thing you can do. You're caught in an ambush. Donald, if anybody would have spotted an ambush, it would have been Donald. But they were so well concealed, Donald went right on through it, too. But Bill was walking back from talking to Donald, and he was going down these squad members and saying, ambush to the right, ambush to the right. And the enemy saw Bill doing this, and they knew they had been found out. So what they did, they launched the ambush, and they blew those Claymore mines on us. Boom, 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 boom. And Marines were hitting the ground, and, and then they opened up their uh, rifles on us. And because... Donald had passed by those uh, Claymore mines. He wasn't hit by a Claymore, but they shot him. And they hit him in just below the navel, which is a bad shot. Uh, you're, you're, um, you're in medical, and you know when you bust your guts, that, that's a bad shot. So he was shot. Also, I don't know this for a fact, Doug, but I, I, I told people, I said when he hollered for us to come get him, there was no sound of pain or agony or nothing in his voice. He was basically saying, I'm hit, come get me. So they might have hit his spine because he might have gone numb. I, I don't know exactly what happened, but I do know his voice did not have any signs of, of struggle in it. Um, he, he was just wounded and he couldn't move. So they ambushed us. It pretty much knocked out like two-thirds of our platoon, actually more than that. They took out first squad, or that not first squad, they took, the point squad, they put um, the CP, which was lieutenant and his radio men and different ones, corpsman, the, the next squad back, and then part of my squad. Uh, they, they took the whole, almost the whole uh, platoon out when, when that first initial. As soon as we realized in the back that we were in ambush and everything was going off, we dropped our packs and we took off to the front. I've never seen so many wounded men in my life in one place, and they were crawling down a hill, they were rolling down a hill, they were carrying each other, they were dragging each other, and I've never seen this before. Your whole family is being decimated. And when I got up there, um, there were a couple of Marines laying there dead. One of them was Bill Bushy, the squad leader. They hit him with a claymore mine. And I didn't know it was him, Doug. I, I crawled up behind him because there was really nothing to hide behind but, you know, elephant leaves and and jungle foliage, and the bullets do not, you know, that doesn't even slow a bullet down. So we kind of crawled up behind them to get a little bit of cover until we could figure something out. And I didn't know it was Bill until somebody said, who is that? And I turned his boot over, because that's where we put our dog tags so they wouldn't jingle, and it was my buddy. And he had, you know, three days left, and there he is dead. And it's like broke my heart. But we heard Donald Liebel, the, the point man, holler, help me, I'm wounded, come get me. And so we were struggling for probably the next two hours of trying to get through that ambush to get that wounded man. Well, this young Hispanic kid had crawled up behind me. His name was Robert DeRuz. Robert had just turned 18 years old in Vietnam. They sent him over there at 17 years old. As soon as he got out of boot camp, they sent him to Vietnam. And so he crawled up behind me, and he hit my leg. And I looked back, and he said, Clark, we got to go get him. We'd heard Donald. And I said, you hold on, we're going to get him, but you got to wait. And so he, I remember he looked away from me, and he looked up kind of up in the air, and he said, he said, uh, somebody's got to go get him. 
and I turned to my left. We were laying on our stomachs to keep from getting hit by the, the bullet. They were hitting about two feet over top of us, so we had to stay down. And I turned to these other guys and I said, "We got to move up. We got to we got move up, move up." Just and I kept, you know, trying to get them to move forward. I looked back and and the ruse was gone. So we continued to fight our way through that ambush, you know, feet at a time, just a couple feet at a time, few feet at a time. They had us pinned down. They were killing Marines around us and shooting them, and and so we uh, we were moving on. But maybe an hour later, I don't know how long it was. It was quite, it was a little while, and we heard this voice saying, "Don't shoot, it's me." This young guy, 18-year-old Marine, had crawled through that ambush, and he got Donald. He found Donald. He cleaned him up a little bit, and then he was he drug him back through that ambush. And when he got through there. We heard him, and so we. Some of the guys went forward to get him. Everybody's crawling on their knees because the, the fighting is so intense, and and so we got him off the hill. And he was the last one to get off the hill. We everybody else we cleared off the hill, the dead and the wounded, everybody. And then we um, we pulled back. And I don't know why they didn't just wipe us out all at one time, because they could have done it, but they didn't. Thank the Lord. And when we got back to the next hill. Because of previous battles, they knew where our medevac choppers were coming in. They knew where our medevacs were going to be laying, waiting for the helicopters. Uh, they knew where the Marines were. You know, we were going to get in that circle, uh, our fighting holes, and protect those wounded guys. And we were doing everything we could to protect them. But they began firing mortars at us, and on the um, uh, what they call it, the action report, uh, what they do after a, a, wet, a fight like this after action report, uh, they said four hours of mortars what we took. And um, and those mortars were coming in. Well, my corpsman, our corpsman, was working on Donald, trying to stop the bleeding, trying to keep him alive, and a mortar round hit right beside him. The way that his, even his family described Donald, it must have landed within a couple of feet of him, and it killed both of them. And uh, I knew other men that were blown off the hill on that, waiting for the medevacs. They were they were already wounded. Our lieutenant got hit eight times that day, eight different places, uh, bullets and shrapnel. And it was just a, a train wreck, you know, and so we got him out there. Well, um, I wrote that book in 2012. It came out in 2013. And it, it's really, it's been a phenomenal book uh, as far as the, the compliments I got from that book and People learn so much, Doug, about what military suffers and why we come home sometimes wounded, mentally, emotionally, and physically. Um, someone, a guy named Tom, um, and I, I got his name, um, and I, I can't, I can't pronounce it half the time. It's one of those northern names, Bluffoffer, I think it is, um, from uh, Fair, Fair, Fairfax, Minnesota called me one day about two years ago and he said I read your book he said I'd heard about it and one of my friends was Donald Lebel Doug this is two years ago this is like you know it, it, how long has it been 49 years almost since Vietnam 1969 well this guy 47 years later he called me and said I read the book and I, the story about Donald I, I went to school or I went to the same school this guy and our town honors this guy because he died in Vietnam and then about a month ago, he had, he had passed the word about that book, and, and the city of Fairfax, Minnesota, called me and said, would you come up and do a Memorial Day service for Donald Lebel? Now, he's been dead for 48 years. I mean, he died on that ridgeline that day. 
and so they they paid accommodations and everything. We got up there, uh, flew up there, and um, they put us up in a nice hotel and everything. But it's a town of about 1,250 people. It's very small, but there the, it's a patriotic. Seemed to be a God fearing little town, and they love their military. Anybody. But um, they've honored Donald. They put his name at the high school in different places. Uh, just always, you know, about him. So Laura and I left uh, just, be, I think, the 26th, and I think Memorial Day was 28th. We left the 27th. So we went up there, and um, we began to meeting people, and they were just so marvelous to us in, in every way possible. And then Memorial Day, they had advertised it. We got to this little center, and there were probably over 200 people there. It was his family, his friends, his uh, guys he went to school with. I mean, everybody was there. And uh, people had heard about him all these years, 48 years they'd heard about him, but they never knew anything about the guy. And so um, I, met, I thought he had a brother and a sister that was alive, but come to find out he's got six brothers and sisters that are alive and then one one brother that died and then one of them's out in New Mexico that couldn't come. So at the Memorial Day, I met his five siblings, three, I think it was three brothers and two sisters. And it was amazing, Doug. I mean, you could see his face, and he's got, I hadn't seen a picture of him in 48 years. And so they had pictures of Donald, high school graduation, and, and you know, that such as that. And it was just, it was like coming home, um, revisiting Donald all over again. There were tears and there was some laughter and the celebrations and things and and so I got I got a chance Doug to get up and speak for Donald and tell him about the life that he lived in Vietnam and his heroism and his courage of uh, putting himself in uh, you know jeopardy for his own friends and everything and and even how he died and I tried to be sympathetic and loving and those things but um, the next day, and I, I, we got to visit his grave, and I left him a, a little um, memento, a Marine Corps emblem, and then a picture of the squad members at his grave site. And then uh, the next day, one of the sisters that couldn't make it called us, hunted us down at the mo- or hotel, and said, would you have lunch with me tomorrow in, in, in um, Minneapolis? So we had to go catch a plane anyway, so we stopped in Minneapolis so right outside of it. And uh, we had lunch with her and her husband. So we actually met six of his family members, and they acted so appreciated, Doug. Um, it was a memorial to Donald. They, the, the two questions they really wanted to ask, was he in pain and did he die alone? And I was able to tell them no. And they said it just it finished the story. You know, one of the things they told me, they said, uh, one of his sisters was talking about, he said, you know, he got two purple hearts, and... I said, well, yeah, okay. And she said, one of them was for malaria and the other when he died. And I said, well, they don't give you uh, a purple heart for uh, malaria. you got to bleed. And she said, "Um, he told us, he he wrote home and said he had malaria, and that's why he was in the hospital. Because I think the government told the family he was in the hospital. And so, anyway, um, he had tried to to defer the fact that he'd been wounded. He got hit in the leg, actually, what it was. And that, that talks about the character of people. They, they don't want to cause their family to grief and, and worry. And um, I don't, most people do not understand the character it takes to be in the military, Doug, and to do your job. The fear factor, um, 
flying aircraft and, and that huge monster of an aircraft. I can't hardly imagine how they get them off the ground, Doug. What you do and what you did, they get it up in the air and they drop ordnance, and then you come back and you have to land that big monster. There's a lot of fear in that kind of thing, and and people, I don't, the average person does not understand what war is about and what it does to people. And I was able to minister to those people also because I told them I was a chaplain. I'm looking at the wall section here and. Out of your platoon, how many how many were killed and wounded, and how many have survived in that horrible ambush? Basically, out of the 48 Marines and corpsmen that were with us that day, we took 42 casualties. Uh, there was originally, I think, five dead, and then two died later from what all the information I got. And then the rest of them, 37 wounded, what, or 35 wounded, I guess it was. So, it, you know, and most of them, we never heard from them again. We never heard anything about them again. Uh, it was only later in life when I began hunting these guys down in 1999 through the computer. I mean, you couldn't do anything before the computer. In in wartime, in Vietnam especially, um, that was the last classic type of fighting that they did. Um, you had you didn't have any uh, information. You had no phones. I mean, all we had was phones, but that, we didn't have those most of the time in the bush. But... Um, if you're going to meet up with a friend later in life, you had to get his phone number and his address of his home. But when you get wiped out like that, you have no time to get anybody's. And so when they were gone, they were gone. And that end of that day, there was only six of us left in the platoon. And I became the squad leader for part of that day until that night. Um, but I only had five men in my, my platoon. So we laughed about that one. That was pretty funny. Were you wounded at all in that ambush or did you somehow come out unscathed i did i i came out of it unscathed and i had marine i had a marine next to me i mean within inches we were bumping into each other got shot through the heart and he bled out right in front of me and tried to say something to me and he couldn't say it i had shrapnel i had a, a grenade they were throwing grenades at us dug probably two at a time in the hand because they had a little stick on the thing that could throw them like two or three at a time and we, they were raining down on us, and one of them landed probably no more than two feet from me. The interesting thing about their grenade, but I didn't learn this until later, um, is um, they had a stick on their grenade. If that grenade was pointing toward you, that stick was pointing toward you, there was a little place that the shrapnel didn't go. And so apparently that one was pointing at me, and uh, the stick was. Because it blew, it blew up. That was the third grenade that I had blow up within a matter of a couple of feet of me, and it, only one of them hit me, and it hit my flak jacket. It didn't hit me, so I, I didn't get hit that day, and um, I felt bad about it because I didn't get hit. Everybody else did. So, and six, the, there was six of us left. Two of those guys had been wounded that day and wouldn't tell anybody. I tried to get them on a chopper because I knew they were they, their legs had shrapnel in them. But they wouldn't tell anybody. They said, I'm not leaving. Oh, I'm, you guys need me. I'm not leaving. Doug, that's character. Uh, you know, these guys were not picked because of character. But the hard times is what brings it out of you. Camaraderie has to be there. We know for a fact, Doug, we talk about it all the time about today's military, that the military has kind of shelved the um, camaraderie part of it. It's like individuals now, one-man army or one one man Air Corps or one man Marine kind of deal. Uh, they're they're actually recruiting people into the Marine Corps. I know this. Uh, I read Navy Times. They're not even really Marines. They don't care about them uh, going to boot camp. They don't go to boot camp. They don't anything. 
because of technology, uh, they do get rank in the Marine Corps and those type of things, but they've never, they're not really Marines. Uh, you, you have to have camaraderie when you go to war because men will give their lives for each other in those kind of situations. Nobody, I don't know of anybody that ever appeared to be a hero. You might have known somebody, but I've never known anybody, Doug. Not until the time showed up when you had to pretty much put your life on the line to do something, and you didn't do it to be a hero. You did it because the situation was if somebody didn't do something, they were all going to die. It was exactly the same thing with our team, you know, when we did in Vietnam with the B-52 repairing it, you know, and I've talked about that horrible day when Doug Prey and I repaired the tracking computer just in time, and we didn't have to fly, and it blew up, and everybody was killed just minutes later, and we were knocked down on the runway. And then when we went to Desert Storm, I mean, the camaraderie, the cohesion, I'm I'm still best friends with... I went to Vietnam with to this day. I'm still best friends and contact continuously with my better half from, you know, 1977 on on. We went to all the stuff. We went to Desert Storm and set up that Iraqi system together and did all this other stuff that they claim we didn't do. Right. I, I think the thing when I look back on, as you mentioned, Memorial Day and what we've had happen in, in the cash account in You've got a copy of that new book that I just read and I sent to you, which seems to be Mirror Your Book, another Mirroring Your Book by another individual about, you know, about the same time frame in the Vietnam War. In both books, you talk about what we knew the same thing as what was the casualty count, how many did we kill, how many were they killed, how many of ours were killed, which came down to how they judged what the war was done. But I guess when I look back on it now, and that's, 1968, when I went over, 1969, went over first in March of 1969, uh, there wasn't anything to win. No. You know, and that's and the same thing. It came down to Desert Storm. There wasn't anything to win. True. I mean, what did we have to win? You know, we don't live there. We don't have education there. We don't have, in, you know, we have some industry we rely on for oil and everything else. But there wasn't nothing there for us to win. No, it was about body count. Actually, count, and I have to come back and ask why. And then, as we struggle, and myself, and I'm struggling to get medical care for myself, and I can't get it for my guys, and they're dead. All right. It was there was a favorite word we used back then. It's called wasted. He got wasted. They got wasted. Waste them. That kind of thing. And I think it was an appropriate word. I think that was the um, right word to describe lives being destroyed and decimated and altered for no particular reason. You know, we never took a hill and kept it hardly. I mean, hardly. We never did uh, because we were constantly moving out in the jungles and bush and everything. But you took a hill and you left a hill. And they retake the hill. And then you go back and knock them off again. And they knock you off. It was about body count. How many did you kill versus how many they killed? And fortunately, we did kill a lot more than they killed. But still, when you lose a, a friend, a close friend, it just it hurts no less than you do if you were working with a guy here at work and you work with him for 10 years and all of a sudden one day something um, terrible happens you see that guy get killed in front of you, it, it's a lasting memory. You'll remember that the rest of your life. And that's called post-trauma. 
and people all over the world is dealing with post-trauma. When you send them to war, it's such a violent world. I mean, it just happens. When a, when you have a crashed aircraft, man, bodies are just torn up, thrown all over the place, ripped up, and somebody's got to go clean it up. But when your friends are like that, um, it just they asked me, from the family asked me, they said, how in the world did you come here and do this? I mean, how do you cope? And I told them, I said, you know, the first 10 years coming back from Vietnam, I wasn't able to find, I found one of my buddies. I remember he was from Lubbock, Texas. And so I hunted him down, and so we made contact. And that was wonderful. But we both missed our friends. I'm telling you, Doug, we we were grieving over this thing. Well, I got it mixed up in alcohol and stuff, you know, and he became a fireman, still taking chances and stuff, the adrenaline pump. Uh, but I did that for 10 years, and then one night I was in a bar, and I got to looking around everybody I was always hanging around, and I, I just questioned it, and I thought, what am I doing? I don't even like these kind of people because I knew better. I, I was I was raised in a home that didn't have the alcohol. My my parents had been that way, but they become a Christian, and so they left that world behind. So I was in a world that was um, drug free and alcohol free, and then later in life, through um, you know through Vietnam and all, I, I got looking around and I thought. What am I doing? I don't even like these people. I'm not. I don't want to be around them. I don't want my children around them. I don't want my wife around them. I don't want to take them home. And so I put my beer down, Doug, and I walked out. And people say, you know, did you lose all your friends? And I said, I didn't lose any of my friends. They lost me. The way you get rid of bad friends is just you start doing what's right. When you start taking care of you and your family and doing what is right, your bad friends will leave because they don't want to do what you're doing. And I told him about how I went. I was invited to go to church, and I don't even know why I went other than to prove to God that I wasn't scared of him. And I said, at church that night, God ambushed me. And um, it just happened. It was it was like he stuck his finger in my face and said, it's time to quit running. And so that night, I didn't run from him. I ran to him. And God, I said, what he did was he gave me forgiveness of my sins and in peace. And I said, I needed that so bad. And I walked out of that place a different human being. See, we we can't get rid of our memories, Doug. That's why we're on this radio program, because of our memories. But we don't have to be hamstrung by those memories. We can live in spite of that. It's just too bad the VA is so overwhelmed with veterans and now a lack of money that they can't take care of the ones who deserve it. And you're one of those, Doug, that... I know you've been this week without any kind of pain medications, and it, you know, the pain's there. You do have to suppress that pain if you can possibly, and it makes life a little more easier so you can get out there and fight for the veterans. But when you don't have your medications, Doug, when, when they forgot to send it to you or when they put you on hold because of reasons, you're suffering. And I, I truly believe, Doug, the, those who went war and and even those who didn't go to war they were still supporting us it took everybody to do it they should be the first ones in line to get the medication or get this or get that but it ought to be the right medication it should be the right amounts not to just give us stuff to shut us up and put us on the side but god cares about everybody who's ever been hurt and and they if they could do what i've done and and you've done too god is God is the one who gives me the ability to cope and to live in spite of what's happened to us. 
and so many have gotten strung up on the things. Uh, you know, it was said, uh, I can't remember the main name, I have it in my book, actually, I think, but um, he said, uh, if you forget your past, you're destined to repeat it, but there's another one that says, uh, if you dwell on your past, it will rob your future. But I, I have, that's all I do. Um, this last Sunday, they allowed me to come in and teach classes that I teach at Camp Lejeune to not only combat veterans, but also people who have been raped and pillaged and molested and in before the service and during the service and all this stuff. Their lives have pretty much stopped because they don't know what to do with themselves. Some of these girls have been raped, or even men, I guess. They were told that they asked for it, and they were, they were sorry, they were a piece of trash and all this stuff, and they come to believe that. And so they quit moving forward. School, all these other things, is just non-existent. What you know, I you can, no matter what, you can keep moving forward. I mean, I, when I came back from Vietnam, I made the conscious choice three days later. You know, I mean, you know, I got out of the, got, got back from Vietnam and the beginning of June of '71, and I came back from Desert Storm the same week in June of '91. And in both cases, I went right into the university. Well, you found it. It was such a strange. It was a strange event, you know. And today, you know, we talked about this before at last Veterans Day. We had the, this whole honors week at Western Illinois University, and I want to read another poem right now. And this is from a Marine, and see if this makes sense. It's called No Rose Garden. We are warriors first, humans second, obedient to our commitment without reverence. We are forced to be reckoned with, pushed to our limits. You will always see our perfect image. But do you think about our sacrifice? Strong, fierce. And we move on. Patriotism, faith, and strength. We give all, while they always take. We are ironclad, hurt, lost, but in demand. We're the face of this nation. We stand tall. Our hearts fill within frustration, yet we'll still sacrifice all. That was written by a U.S. Marine by the name of Christine Lopez. Christine Lopez, United States Marine Corps veteran. She joined the Marine Corps in May of 2013, attended uh, recruit training at Paris Island, was stationed at Camp Pendleton, California, for a four-year enlistment, where she served in both the Marine Corps Air Station as supply clerk and Camp Taylor as a physical clerk. Christine is currently a student at Western Law University working on Bachelor of Science in Nursing. Here's a Doug. former Marine, current time, that wrote that incredible poem that I just read. And she's dedicated her life to nursing. She's moved forward. She's moved on. That's right. So you knew that, Doug. I... When I came back, I was numb from the neck up. I'll be honest with you. I just could not. I think I lost my emotions for quite a long time, and I was, I was working. I was doing a lot of things, but I wasn't moving forward in my heart. I was waiting to die and hope I would die. But um, you know, you've got to get your head together, and that's what I did in that Sunday, uh, sun, this past Sunday morning and night. They let me give the two programs. One of the programs that I truly believe God gave me, and I put this thing together, it's called Life After Trauma, A Pathway to Purpose. 
It's about getting them up and giving them a future, get them back in school, doing the things they should be doing, and just move forward because nobody's going to do it for you. You have to make a conscious decision. The second part was about moral injury. And, look, I've had Marines sitting there in those classes, Doug, and crying. I mean, tears running down their face, not not weeping, but tears running down their face and saying, nobody's ever told me this before. They've been told they have a mental illness. They've been told they have chemical imbalance and they, all this other stuff, and they're, they're just giving them medications. So many of them are on medications, and they're drinking because they're young and it's available and they're in the military, that they're, they have what they call deathbed uh, syndrome because where they're dying in their sleep because of the drugs and medications. That is not going to fix anybody, Doug. It's, it comes, like you said, to a conscious decision. I I made that decision one night about coming to Christ, and I've never been uh, sorry for that. Every day of my life, Doug, I wake up, and when I'm praying before God, I, you know, just a little prayer. It's not a big prayer. It's not a, a priestly kind of prayer or nothing. It's just a prayer between conversation between me and God. Every day I ask him to hold my hand and help me hold his hand, and because I want him with me all day long, that gives me the encouragement, the motivation, the strength to move forward. I don't care how bad it gets or how the memories come. I have to avoid certain memories, and I have to stay away. Well, we're out of another day, another time, ladies and gentlemen. Ray, God bless you. You gave closure to the Libel family on Memorial Day, and you saw what their son was, what he gave. And the honor it did. God bless you. God bless the Libel family and all the rest. Thank you. And a good evening, ladies and gentlemen.